Good morning, everyone. So uh, we have been um, focusing, and, Jer- and Justin's been walking us um, through the book of Jeremiah. And um, I get the opportunity to sort of come in and um, provide uh, a, a New Testament break from the, uh, the, the weeping of Jeremiah. Um, but today I get the opportunity to actually join in the flow um, of this new book that it is that we're stepping into that's held within uh, the book of Jeremiah um, that begins with chapter 31. And so um, we're going to be hanging out in chapter 31. If you know, um, you know, have been uh, familiar with the scriptures or life in the church, um, Jeremiah 31 is, is a really, really important and formational um, point of scripture. Not, not that they all aren't, um, but there are certain uh, concrete foundational places that we find ourselves in scriptures um, that provide sort of like a, a launch point or, or deep clarity and teaching about a specific point of theology or doctrine that's very, very foundational. Jeremiah 31 is, is, is one of those. Um, uh, without, without knowing it, um, your Christian faith is foundationed upon Jeremiah 31. Um, it is a place that we tend not, not to think about um, when, we, uh, when we go to like the core of what the gospel is. Or what the, uh, but to, to lose Jeremiah 31 would be to lose everything. So um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to step into our time together. Lord, thank you for uh, your words to your people. Uh, we want to receive them again um, in all of the various and creative ways that you minister and speak them to us. So, so I mean, straight from the pages of this text or uh, from the community gathered together, um, from your spirit's communion with our spirit, Lord, we want to hear your words today, and we want to know your mind. Um, we want to feel your heart, and we want to understand um, you more deeply. So we do that by standing under you and coming under you and underneath your revelation and your wisdom. So for each one of us, Father, I pray that you would um, open now our hearts and minds to what it is that you know each person here individually needs to receive from you today. And then also for us corporately, uh, we pray that you would um, give Cornerstone um, here, Cornerstone folks who couldn't make it today, just the fullness of our body here, um, what it is that you, you have for us as we step into this time together to receive from you, your revelation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Jeremiah 31, um, we're beginning to engage and uh, um, hear God's heart in the midst of what has been just a a horrific time for Jeremiah and for the people of God, the Babylonian captivity, um, as Jeremiah is sort of watching this captivity take place and as being a consistent uh, voice, a consistent way of um, God communicating to his people from, uh, from the prophetic standpoint. If you remember what the heart of that communication is, Jeremiah's call in chapter 1 is this. Um, first of all, God warns him, um, like, don't, don't forget who you are. He's like, God says, I, I knew you. I knew you before you were born. I set you apart for a specific ministry. Um, I know that you're young. Don't let anybody despise you because of that. Like, do and be who it is that I made you to be and, and serve me in the way that I'm calling you to serve me. And then he defines that for Jeremiah. The Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So this is the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah, but more so it's the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah's words. 
So as Jeremiah follows God in obedience, his words are going to be God's words, and they're going to have this effect just as a repeat. This is important to the rest of the teaching. Um, I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow, and to build and to plant. So in chapter 31, Jeremiah is now bringing points of consolation. He's bringing points of comfort in the midst of this uh, of so much judgment and in the midst of, of, of so, so much weeping, of so much mourning over what's being lost, God now begins to speak his heart for his people that, that has never changed, that his heart will continue to be for redemption. In the midst of judgment, he's going to buy them back. In the midst of, of all of these experiences of just um, uh, so much being lost and so much being broken in the story of the nation of Israel, God is not going to fail on himself. All right, God's not going to fail on himself, and, and that's an important distinction. So um, governments are set up and uh, carry authority with them. How is the authority of a government carried out? very simple. You don't have to overthink it. Laws. That's right. Yes. The, the, the governmental authority is, is carried out. And, and the law of the government, it always matters and it always carries power, right? It always carries power and it always carries authority, right? So the way that a government is enacted is, is through a certain set of laws, and it doesn't matter what our intention is. You know what I mean? Like you can stand before a judge and sit to your blue in the face and, and, and talk about your motivations and how good they were. Like, for example, um, uh, a couple months ago, I was going to speak at a church in Lancaster. And uh, I left the house late. Uh, Sherry was with me that day. We were going there. I was going down Fruitville Pike. And uh, I was breaking the law, uh, you know, for a very good reason, like the best reason ever, you know, to get there in time for prayer. Uh, because I wanted to pray with the elders beforehand and then completely missed the prayer with the elders beforehand because I was communing with the police officer. <laughs> right, so the best intentions, the, the, the governmental system doesn't bend for those things. Right? Things don't shift. And, and the way that God's government um, is meant to be walked out is, is very similar. God's government is an extension of himself. God's government is an extension of his own heart. Our reflective reading this morning was a governmental reading. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and what will be on his shoulders? The government will be on his shoulders. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. So God's government is a government that's based on peace. It's a government that's based on wholeness. And God can say these kinds of things because he's God. I don't think anybody in the whole world could go to any country and be like, this government is based completely on wholeness and peace. You know? Like, here, here we are. Like, look at this perfect government. It doesn't happen. Um, God himself, as king, is set over all things and sets over his people and over the church, and his government is enacted. He sets over the entire world, and his government is enacted. What is God's government? That, that's the key question. How is God's government translated to humans? Most humans think that God's government is given to us through a series of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do this. That's how human government works. You can go 45, that's it. You can't go 72, right? Yeah, 
Yeah. Right? Like a lot of money later, I learned this lesson. The thing is, is I've learned it many times before. Uh, you know, to be completely honest with you. Uh, my son turned 16 yesterday. Uh, how's that? So, uh, so we'll see how generational sin uh, walks itself out or what victory we can walk in. Uh, we'll be there together, buddy. All right. God's government is enacted on the world, um, I would suggest, not through do's and don'ts. Our God is not a God of do's and don'ts um, in that uh, what comes from that way of thinking is that God is a God of restrictions. Um, however, uh, what we do learn is that God is a God of freedom. Um, but that freedom has to be contained within who he is. So I would suggest rather than thinking about God's government through do's and don'ts, the best way that we can think about God's government is through covenants. Our God at his core is a covenantal God. And he has set himself down in relation to humans through covenant. Through covenant. Now, covenant is a concept that we just, frankly, do not get. That this is not a concept or it's not even a word that we use all that often. Um, particularly as Americans or as particularly as anyone in a capitalistic society. Um, because the economy that we grew up in is an economy that's based on do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs. You give, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Give and take, if then statements. God's government doesn't work like that covenantally. God's covenants are expressed to humans from his own self, right? So when God covenants, he covenants not just like a please behave the right way for me, but he covenants with us in that um, he actually takes us into himself in relationship. He actually brings us to him. He reshapes us. He remakes us. Um, he, he calls a people for his own, and he covenants with them. God's covenant is the key, and God's covenant holds no matter what all the time. However, we don't really understand that statement, I would suggest. I would suggest the church right now is on one grand journey for many, many, many years to come of rediscovering and walking in what it means for us to be a covenantal community what it means for us to be a covenantal people. Justin uh, had the opportunity to hear um, Scott McKnight teach last week. Um, McKnight is a, um, just a great theologian, great thinker. And um, McKnight essentially said this thing, that we don't have any idea what covenant is. Um, McKnight defined covenant like this, rugged commitment. Right? Rugged commitment. That's pretty good. Uh, I think it's about as far as we've gotten at this point. I think we have so much more to learn about covenant. Pretty much the only time that we talk or think about covenant is in regard to marriage. Um, it, it's, it's, um, it's a good picture, but it's not the full picture, at least not when we think about what it is that God brings. In Jeremiah 31, we see God bring a covenant to his people. like He is covenanting with them again. However, in Jeremiah 31, we're going to see God covenanting with his people in a new way. Furthermore, in Jeremiah 31, he's covenanting that with them, not just in a new way, but he's also covenanting with them in a future way. So he is going to be using this phrase a lot. It's the phrase you see up on the, up on the, um, the screen. Behold, the days are coming. All right, behold, the days are coming. Let's all say that together. Behold, the days are coming. Behold, the days are coming becomes a repetitive poetic phrase throughout Jeremiah 31 through 35. 
um, and we see it in a repetitious fashion. And it, it's a focus point for Jeremiah because in the midst of all of this captivity, in the midst of all of this brokenness, and it, frankly, in the midst of the fact that the reason that the Israelites are being sent into captivity in Babylon is because they broke the covenant, Jeremiah is speaking redemption and life and goodness that is still going to come. And that reaches its zenith here in Jeremiah 31. So, Jeremiah 31, we're going to start in verse uh, 23. I think I have it up here for you. So, that's the focal point that we'll be at, verses 31 to 34. We're going to get the context. 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary, and every languishing soul I will replenish. This is important, like, like the way that Jeremiah is speaking. This is a new way for him to be speaking in this book. Um, because all he's been talking about is people languishing. <laughs> all he's been talking about is people being weary in their souls. What he's been talking about is the destruction that he's witnessing. However, he's now speaking of things that are to come. The days are coming when these things are going to be restored, when people will be back in the land and they will bless each other and God will satisfy their weariness. Verse 26, At this I awoke and looked and my sleep was pleasant to me. Verse 27, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Where did we see those phrases? Jeremiah chapter 1. Right? The, the call of Jeremiah the call of God's son here is being rooted in God himself because it's God's words that are being activated. So now God is saying, behold, the days are coming. The days are on their way when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. In other words, you're going to go back to your land and you're going to grow there. You're going to be generationally bound there. Like you're going to have the very thing that you lost. Those days are coming. It shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, to bring, and to bring harm, I will also watch over them to build and to plant. And so this is the beauty and the work of God's judgment and God's justice bringing about life. God's justice actually breeding mercy in the long run. In those days, they will no longer say, and this is key, this is pretty actually really amazing. In those days, they will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge, right? Which is a phrase that you and I use all the time. Um, you know, very, very common vernacular here. Um, yeah, my poor kid's teeth are set on edge. Um, if you've ever drank sour wine, though, you know exactly what he's talking about. Right? Like, you know, like sour wine, when it goes bad, it gets like that vinegary kind of a thing to it, you know? This happens when you buy the boxed wine instead of the bottled wine because you think that, you know, and then it just sits there forever. And then you try it again. Like, it's been here for a while, and it tastes awful. It's like, <clears throat> you know, I was like, whoa, where did that come from? It's, it's a bite. And this vernacular is sort of like, you know, sin works like this. The, the parents drink the sour wine, and the kids bear the brunt of it. However, what does God say? The days are coming when it will not be like that. 
The days are coming when true freedom from sin, even generational sin, will be cut off. This is huge. This is huge. I'm looking around this room and I see some generation breakers. You know, I see people who have looked their past in the face and said no to it. That's because you are held in God's covenant. Everyone will die for his own sin, Jeremiah says. Each man who eats sour grapes, his own teeth, will be set on edge. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. I just, that's, that's some beautiful poetry right there. Or like, if you can do something absolutely impossible, like that, that, that's how likely it is. That's how close you can get to me breaking my word. Verse 38, behold, the days are coming, God says again. When the city shall be rebuilt from the Lord, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill Garab and shall then to go Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be uprooted or overthrown any more. And that's exactly the boundaries for what it was that Babylon took. So what has been taken will be restored. And God is basing and working and forming and foundationing all of these things in and on this idea of a new covenant, right? A new covenant. The covenant that the people had been mainly used to understanding up until this point was a covenant that was made with them after they were released from Egypt. Now, if you remember, the people of Israel were in Egypt, they were in bondage, they were in slavery, and... uh, um, just as a point of note, did you ever realize that, that the great judgment of the people of Israel um, was not death? That the, the great destruction of Egypt wasn't that like they were all taken into captivity and then summarily executed. What were they made to do in Egypt? Work. And when Moses came and said, let God's people go, Pharaoh did not like line up all the men and then just kill every 10th one. What did he do to punish them? He doubled their work. Right? What are you and I absolutely held captive by? Work. Right? And not that work is bad. 
but that work becomes God held under a false king. And so this covenant that God calls the people to after he sets them free from Egypt is a covenant to rest as opposed to work. And so that the work that they do actually comes from a standpoint of rest so that by the time the people actually get from Egypt to Israel and when they take the land in Israel, the theme of that conquest is that the land may have rest so that the land and the people can have rest so that, that can be, they can be at oneness with their God. This covenant is something that the people of Israel signed on to. Moses stood before them and said, I set before you two things, life and death. Here's life and here's death. Choose this. Right? Choose this. Don't choose that. Don't choose that. And what did the people say? We're going to do it. We're going to follow God. And then what did they do? Then they did the golden calf. And it's sort of like, what? You know, like that's, that's crazy. That was so fast. Right, that was so fast. And that was so. Before, before we get too judgmental, people of Israel, let's remember ourselves, <laughs> right? As we think about what it means for us to walk in a covenant with the Lord as, as well. So the people of God say, yes, we're going to follow God. They don't follow God. Where is the law at that point in time? Where does Moses have the law? He's got them on two tablets, right? One, cap, one copy for God, one copy for the people. And this is where the law is. And what does Moses do with those tablets after the people sin at the golden calf? He destroys them. That's right. And then what does God give Moses again? Another set. Another set of the same covenant. And again, the people say, we will follow that. And God says, I'm going to make it easier for you to follow this because I'm going to actually come and I'm going to live among you. And I'm going to lead you myself. And I'm going to be your king. And, I, and you follow me. And we'll go to the promised land, and, it, and it's all going to be good. And I'm going to take care of you. And even despite their stubbornness and sin, he takes care of them. And there's water from rocks, and there's birds falling from heaven. And every morning, there's bread on the ground, you know. And it's sort of like this, this amazing experience. And from time to time, there's these vicious points of sin where the earth opens up and swallows 23,000 people. But hey, what are you going to do? And uh, uh, they keep moving. And, and, but the people's hearts get hard for some reason. It's because, like, in their mind, like, they've become the covenant givers. And they say to God, God, you're not keeping your end of the bargain. We thought we had an agreement here. And so God leads them through the wilderness. And for 40 years in the wilderness, they finally make it to the land of Israel. And God says, do not worship false idols. And what do they do? They worship false idols. And time and time again, we see this cycle taking place where the people uh, repent from their idolatry and then come back to it and then repent and then come back to it. And it leads to this nasty place of the people saying, you know what? We don't want God to rule us anymore. We want a human king to rule us. God says, don't do it. But if you do it, this is what's going to happen. And so they put human kings up, and sure enough, everything that God said happens. And the people of God struggle back and forth with this covenant. Like, are we going to be the people of God or are we not? Are we going to be the people of God or are we not? Sometimes we're in and sometimes we're out. In and all through it, God's heart is getting broken over and over and over again. And in and through it, God is continually judging them to bring them back to him over and over again and lavishing his love and goodness on them. And they receive it for a season and then they turn back again. And this covenant, this relationship, this engagement, that was this vehicle that was the old covenant 
a way to know and to be with the God of the universe and to be his people and for them to be their God, like it wasn't being fulfilled the way that it was meant to be. And God said, as a result of all that, particularly as a result for just systemic and horrific idolatry that went so far as to watching the people of God throw their babies into burning fire in worship of false deities. God says, enough. Enough. You must learn. Like This cannot be had. I am your God. There is no other. And they were sent into exile away from the land where they did not just have access to the Lord, but they also did not have access to the community. And that's the key for the people. Like without the temple, there's no community. You're not allowed to go to a foreign land and worship God like you would as though you were in Jerusalem. That's completely against the law. Like you, you, you can't do that. So they don't just lose, they don't just lose their land, they lose their identity. They lose themselves. They lose their own sense of who they are. They lose their reason and, and matter for being. And it's almost more than they can stand. And Jeremiah and the people, they feel it. And they emote it. Which is why we know that Jeremiah is the prophet who weeps. Just like we've seen up here every week that we've come together through this book. The prophet weeping over the land. The prophet weeping for the people. And the people of God are asking themselves at this point, like, is this what we've come to? Is this how it is? Have we fully and truly blown it? Have we fallen so far that there is no way for us to get back in with God? But you see, that's not God. (laughs) That's a whole lot of us. Because we serve a God who is one of redemption and life and newness. And so in the place where the old covenant carried his heart, it's important for you to know that the new covenant does not do away with that. The old covenant is fulfilled in the new covenant. Right? The new covenant doesn't mean that it comes from nowhere. The new covenant, it comes from something. There are, there are three theories of, of creation, of ways things that are created. Right? Here's your Latin lesson for the day, which I know you're just so excited about. Um, ex nihilo. Ex nihilo. Let me hear you say ex nihilo. Ex nihilo means out of nothing. Out of nothing. So this is the general Protestant way of thinking about creation. God said, let there be light, and there was light. It came from nothing. It, it, it came from, from nothing. Have you ever stopped to think about nothing? Have you ever stopped philosophically to think about the fact that I'm talking about nothing, which makes it a something? And if something was truly nothing, then we really wouldn't be talking. Which is always really interesting to me to think about like the ex nihilo theory of creation. Because before the creation, was there actually nothing? No. There was actually God. Which can, this is a completely different teaching, but this can really take your creationism concepts and turn it on to your, um, because we think of ex nihilo, the opposite of that is being ex materia. Right? Let me hear you say ex materia. Ex materia, which, which means that it's, uh, I mean, you can see the word material there, which means that it's out of something, out of nothing or 
out of, out of something. However, we know that God is a spirit. So it's sort of like, huh, I wonder where that came from. Well, the answer could just be so obvious as that it's ex Deo. Let me hear you say ex Deo. Ex Deo, in that what's created actually comes out of God. Which makes a whole lot more sense to me when we think about humans being made in his image. And when we think about the earth and the universe actually declaring his glory just by its very existence. Anyway, I'm not here to teach on that today. I am here, however, to say this, that the covenants are ex Deo. That's crucial. The covenants are, in other words, the covenantal way that God operates with us comes straight from his being. It comes right from who he is in here, which means the new covenant is extending from some place. And it's only new in that it's fresh. (laughs) It's only new in that it's a way of thinking about God and his interactions with his people in a different way than what they previously had. See, the way they previously had, God was extending to them the exact same blessings that the new covenant brought. Be my people and experience life forever. The new covenant is offering that as well. But what we see God do in the new covenant is 100% 100 fully take on himself the beauty of the covenant and it rather than making tablets of stone, in other words, your list of do's and don'ts, he actually engages and writes it on your very heart. That's what he says here. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my, I'm in verse 33, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. God is fully receiving the full weight of his covenantal being with his people. And the invitation that he brings to us in the new covenant is the invitation to come and to know, and to understand, and to engage his heart. That is his same heart, his people, in his land, under his rule. That's always been the point of every covenant that's ever been voiced in Scripture. The new covenant takes the full relate, the full relationship in that, The new covenant takes the full spiritual weight of that. The new covenant takes everything and wraps it fully up in God completely with the exact same intention and heart that it's always been. That you come to me by faith and you understand that I am your God. You are my people. And the days are coming, Jeremiah says. The days are coming when this covenant, this new covenant will be realized. And there'll be something completely different, something completely reworked, where it's actually in you. Where it's actually in you. Where it's not something set outside of you. Where if you go to the city of Jerusalem and you say, so where's God? Where does everybody point? He's over there at the temple. How do I meet with God? Um, Well, you should be very careful about that. Um, because if you just go traipsing in there, you're going to die. You can't do that. I can't go in? No, you can't. No, you can't. Who can? God set up a system for that. This is how it works. Who says that? The law says that. Where's that? Right here. 
You're going to read it. Oh, okay. That's how it works. God's people, God's ways, God's land, still God's same intention and heart. But there's a way that it worked itself out that God brings all of that forward and fulfills it in the new covenant. And Jeremiah says, these days are coming. The beauty of Advent is the incarnation. The beauty of the incarnation is that God became human. And the strange and twisted beauty of God becoming human is that God could die. And so we see Jesus sitting down with his disciples for one last supper and saying to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body broken for you. Take this cup and drink it. This cup is what? The new covenant in my blood. Take this as often as you do in remembrance of me. The people of Israel, when Jeremiah writes this, know nothing but sorrow and shame. And Jeremiah sets something way out there that says a new covenant is coming. Redemption is on the way. Behold, the days are coming when it will not be like this anymore when your family won't be ashamed at the fact that you threw your babies in the fires of Molech, when you as a people won't be ashamed that that other nations came in and tore down your walls, that this nation that once saw the glories of King David and Solomon somehow blew it by worshiping idols systemically and generationally over and over. At some point, you're not going to be ashamed that thousands and thousands of years ago when God looked at the earth and said, you, Abraham, And then made this great nation that we somehow lost that. And all the sin and the guilt and the shame that come from that. That we were the people of God. That he blessed us. That he brought us to this place. And that we, through idolatry, somehow lost it. And now here we are living in a foreign land, far away from anything that we ever wanted. Especially his presence. What are we going to do at the temple? We can't worship God. We can't do sacrifices. We can't be in his presence. Where is God now? God is nowhere that we can see. We are far away in a pagan nation and completely apart from what it is that we were ever intended to have. How did this happen? How did this happen? This happened through hundreds and hundreds of years of idolatry. Well, I guess on some level then, we sort of deserve this, don't we? Yeah, we sort of deserve this. Let's sit here in our guilt and shame and just wallow the rest of our years away. That's human government. You get what you deserve. That is not God's covenant. Human government says you get what you deserve. God's government says I will love you no matter what. And I will keep my promises. Sin will not be your story. I will be your story. We and our love will be your story. And what you're experiencing now is the result of what happens when sin breaks a people and breaks a nation. And it's real and it's felt. But I am telling you, there is a new thing coming. 
that will completely forever and ever change the game because no longer will you be looking at what it means outside of you to follow me, but rather that will be within you to follow me. It won't be a where's God and where's God's love, God's love and God's, God's goodness. You will feel it right down in here. It will be written on your hearts and you won't ever be able to even get away from it. I will have my people. I will see this victory. Sin will not be your story. The results of sin will not be your narrative. Exile is not your destiny. I am your home. I am your love. I am your husband. And I will take all of this on me. But God, how will that happen? Look at this sin. We're talking thousands and thousands of years of the worst kind of idolatry you can imagine. We're talking about 39 years of the worst idolatry you can imagine. How could God ever love this? How could God ever love this kind of idolater? Because of the new covenant. That's why. Because God doesn't gauge his government according to my actions. God doesn't gauge his love according to my worthiness. God doesn't love you because you earned something from him. God doesn't expect you to keep up your end of the bargain. Your end of the bargain was satisfied by Christ because your end of the bargain was pure systemic death. But in Jesus, when he takes that cup and he holds it and says, this is the new covenant in my blood, he changes everything. He pulls Jeremiah completely forward and everything they've been looking forward to, this whole new covenant, like when will this come? When will this come? When will the Messiah bring this incredible new covenant? We read about it here. It's incredibly life-giving. It's incredibly liberating. The days are coming. Jesus says, the days are here. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And I take all this weight upon myself. I take all this judgment. Jesus receives all of the injustice. Jesus experiences all of the exile. Jesus receives all of the wrath. And his blood poured out for us is the expression of his deep, deep love for us. And it is the sealing of the new covenant that you and I stand in. And God's government has won. The kingdom is here and his name is Jesus. And he has forever vanquished sin, death, and the grave. And the government by which he rules is this new covenant. And that is your reality. Behold, the days are coming becomes, behold, the days are here. So then what does that mean? What does that mean? That's the question we're going to end on. What does that mean? Uh, Take your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts. Where's the new covenant written? 
That's right. And who does Paul just say is written on his heart? The Corinthians. That's interesting. See, covenants can't be held individually. Covenants are held communally. And if the new covenant is ever going to be realized in the hearts of people, it's because the people of God live it. Other than that, it's just a great theological concept. But at the core, the new covenant is love. So until the people of God or when the people of God live in love, that's when the new covenant is realized, is when the people of God live as the people of God, a people of love. You yourselves are written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show us, you, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on our tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The law of God is written on the hearts of humans, and that law, that writing, that is the Holy Spirit. And you and I, to answer that question, so like, what does this mean? It means that you and I are ministers of the new covenant. If the new covenant is seen, realized, expressed in any way right now, in the world. It's when the people of God come together and are the people of God. And when the people of God go out there and are the people of God. The new covenant was just declared, not in that a cup of juice was poured this morning and set on a table. The cup, the new covenant was declared as the people of God came together and took it and together remembered the new covenant that is Christ's blood. It's we that activated that. That's just a ritual unless the people of God engage it with their bodies and engage it with their lives and engage it with their hearts. This cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood is activated as you and I are ministers of the new covenant. You are a minister of the new covenant. You are a priest of the new covenant. This is the beauty of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. And what the enemy wants to camp out on and try and tell you is that you're alone and that you'll be abandoned. But the new covenant says differently. It says that you and we are joined together by something deeper, fuller, stronger, better than anything that we can possibly wrap our minds around. And the kingdom of darkness falls before it. Evil, sin, death, the grave has no power before it. You are a minister of the new covenant. The new covenant is activated and lived out through you. So go be you. Go and love. Go and be the presence of Jesus. Go and speak his redemption and life and faithfulness. Go and be you. Thank you, God, for the beauty that is Christ who brings us together. 
and who ministers to us the new covenant and who then calls us to be ministers of the new covenant. Commission us now, Father, to go and be who you made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.